Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. You've made the best decision you could possibly make by tuning your ear to the Word of God. I would love to invite you to stay updated with us on Facebook and YouTube. You can find us at Revival House Church. Father, bless this person and let the seed of the Word multiply 30, 60, and 100 times over in Jesus' name. So tonight, I want to talk to you about biblical prosperity. I want you to say biblical Biblical. prosperity. Prosperity. You know, um, I've been searching, really trying. This is what I want to do tonight. I want to try to bring a balance to some things in this circle, in this realm, in this field, with this message. It's been in my heart to bring a balance to some things. I believe this is going to help you. I want to help define some things more clearly in the Bible. Uh, And this is because for me, I've been finding this balance, praying, searching the scripture, asking the Lord to help me find this same balance in my life. Amen. So let's go ahead and begin. Look at 3 John 1, 2. 3 John 1, 2. In this verse, I'm going to give you a definition or start. I'm going to give you several things that help build a good idea of what prosperity is. But in this verse, I'm going to begin to show you a definition of prosper. So if you are taking notes, you can write down prosper. I'm going to give you a definition. This is what the scripture says. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper. Say prosper. So go ahead and get that out of your mind. Prosperity or prosper, it's not a dirty word. It's not a nasty word. I know I'm preaching to the choir in this church. None of you believe that, that I know of. But in many Christian circles amongst many believers, that's a dirty, nasty word. They, they hate that word, but the word's in the Bible. If we're not going to be, you know, we can avoid things in the Bible and just continue to overlook, or we can really press in and ask God for spiritual wisdom to help us understand these things so we don't have to, whoop, you know. That's what we did last, uh, this last year with the book of Revelation. I felt like a lot of Christians, they'll read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, get into Acts and Romans and 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, go, go, go all the way down the line, and then they'll get to Revelation, and what do they do? Skip, go back over to Matthew, Mark, Luke, you know, and so uh, we really took time just digging in, like, Lord, we don't want to ignore these things in your word. That's, that's being a poor steward. We want to understand these things, and so say prosper. That's a biblical word. It's in the Bible, all throughout the Bible. So let's just deal with it and get over it. He said, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Okay, this is prosperity in three areas. Any theologian that studies this will tell you uh, proper, breaking this scripture down properly, this means... Prosper in three areas, spiritual, physical, material, or financial. Okay, God wants you to prosper spiritually. Amen. Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, we've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. Right? We prosper spiritually. I don't think any Christian has a problem with that. They have a problem with the next two, which is this. Uh... He wants you to prosper spiritually, but he also wants you to prosper physically. What is physically? That's your health. Matthew eight seventeen, 
Jesus said, the Bible says he took our sicknesses, he removed our diseases. Isaiah 53, 5, he was beaten so that we could be whole, he was whipped so that we could be healed. He wants us to prosper physically, that's in our health. And then finally, he said, he wants us to prosper material, in, in material good or financially, he wants us to prosper. Say financial. Say material. Material. Prosperity. Okay, so that word's there. We can't get around it. It's used. There's so many different references we could dig into and look at, and we'll do some of that in this teaching. But I want to help, really, because, again, there's two sides of the ditch. There's a ditch where believers believe that God wants you to take a vow of poverty. He wants you poor. He wants you broke. He wants you beat down. That's more holy, that's more righteous, and that's where God delights to see you. And that's, that's a wrong side of the ditch. Then there's another side of the ditch that says that God wants everybody to drive golden Cadillacs and live in mansions that are 75,000 square feet. And, and, and that's another, I believe, opposite wrong side of the ditch as well. And in between those two things is the middle ground of what the Bible teaches. Are you all with me? I want to help bring some balance and just look at the Bible, at biblical prosperity. And so, that word, say prosper, this is that Greek word. This is actually what it means in the Greek. So we don't have to figure it out for ourselves or fill in the blank what I think it means. This is what the Greek word actually means. That word prosper means to have a successful journey, to help on the road, reaching a destination successfully. You know, again, both sides of the road. You got one group of Christians that they would think, oh, that word prosper, that just means spiritual. If I were to look at that Greek word, somewhere some spirit would be in that definition somewhere. And then the other side is they're, they're looking for golden Cadillacs and mansions, and neither one of those things are in this definition. It means to have a successful journey, you know, to have help on the road. So just think, you're taking a journey, you're, you're, you're walking. Three days walk, what does it mean to prosper that God would give you success in that journey? He would keep you, he would guard you, he would supply you, he would help you. That's what it means to biblically prosper. Okay, so let's look at some examples of that same Greek word that's used there. And, you know, I didn't write it because I I don't speak Greek and I don't want to look like an idiot up here. Didaka, you know, I don't know, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm just telling you what the definition is. Romans 1.10, this is where that same word is used in the Bible, that you may prosper. Paul used it as well in Romans 1.10. He said, making a request, if by any means now at length that I may have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. So basically, Paul is saying, I want to come to you. Pray to God that he would allow me to come to you and pray that when I come to you that I'd have a prosperous journey. You know, was Paul in his mind thinking golden Cadillacs and, and uh, mansions or was he thinking, oh, I'm just going to struggle and, and just spiritual prosperity? No, he understood that God, pros- give me pros- uh, prosperity in this journey that God would give me success, that he would help me in reaching the destination successfully. Okay, Look, again, where else it's used in 1 Corinthians 16, chapter 2. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, 
as God hath prospered him, that there be no gathering when I come. So basically, Paul, he was preparing an offering that he was going to take up amongst the Corinthian church, and he was giving them some instruction. He says, instead of waiting till the last day and then trying to take it all up all at once, why don't you just set it aside? He was taking up an offering to take to another church. Each week, as God has prospered you, set a portion aside each week. Okay, so again, that word prospered, it's not spiritual, it's not in the spiritual tense. Every time it's used, it's in physical, material tense. Does that make sense? So God's never talking about spiritual things in any of these references. They're all physical. So basically, Paul is saying even to the Christians, as God has helped you, as God has blessed you, as God's hand's been upon you, and he has biblically prospered you, set a portion aside for the offering each week, so that when I come, there will be no gatherings. Okay, so by this definition, which is, again, to have successful journey to help on the road, reaching a destination successfully, write this down for point number two tonight. By definition here, the disciples prospered when they were sent out to preach. By definition here, the disciples prospered when they were sent out to preach. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. I'll read you the verses. Luke 9, 1 through 5. One day Jesus called together his 12 disciples and he gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. Praise God. That is the ministry of Jesus Christ. He forgave sinners. He cast out demons. He, he healed the sick. He preached He taught, then he sent them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And this is what he said, take nothing for your journey. He instructed them, don't take a walking stick. Don't take a traveler's bag. Don't take food. Don't take money or even a change of clothes. Wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. And if a town refuses to welcome you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. Let me ask you a question. He says, take nothing with you. Take no traveler's bag, no walking stick, no money, no wallet, no food, no clothes. Don't, you know, don't even take money to stay in a hotel. Let people open their homes to you. Take nothing with you. Here's the question. Did they lack anything? Said No. Jesus said this in Luke twenty two thirty five. Jesus asked them, when I sent you out to preach the good news and you did not have money, a traveler's bag, an extra pair of sandals, did you need anything? Look what they said. No, they replied. So what does that mean? Jesus, by biblical definition, he caused them to prosper in their work. That means to have successful journey help reach a destination successfully. Are y'all with me? Okay, so at any point in that illustration, when Jesus sent them out, were the disciples driving, driving around golden Cadillacs, living in mansions with world-class entertainment and private chefs? Was that a part of their prosperity in that journey? Say, no, it wasn't. Yet, by definition, they prospered in that ministry excursion. Amen. 
Okay, so here's a question then. Helping you, I'm going to build this to a point to give you biblical definition of prosperity. This will help. What does prosperity include for each believer? If that's the case, and these are examples we're looking at in the Bible, what does prosperity include for each believer? Well, if we just look at that verse we read, let's break down some of those things. What does it include? Strength, right? Strength. He said don't take a walking stick. I looked up what is a walking stick, uh, and basically it just means, looking into kind of the context, it's pretty self-explanatory, but it said they would carry a stick, they'd carry a staff that they could lean on during long journeys, right? They're going to go walk. They didn't have cars. They have to walk for hours. They have to walk for days at a time to go to these different cities. So they'd take a stick, and it would help them. When they would get tired, they could lean on the stick, and it'd help them in their journey. Jesus said, don't take a walking stick. Why did he say don't take a walking stick? Because God is going to help you in your strength. Praise God. So it says strength. Isaiah 40, 29 through 31. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles, and they will run and not grow weary. They will, not, they will walk and not grow faint. Basically, this is a picture of physical prosperity. God will keep your body. Amen. God will give you strength for your assignment. That's a part of this prosperity. Next thing. He said, take no wallet. Traveler's bag, that was a wallet. So what else is part of prosperity? Daily provision of needs. Say daily provision of needs. So basically when he told them to take no wallet, he was saying you won't have to supply out of some stored up reservoir. When you go into a city, and it, you, remember they're taking no clothes, they're taking no food. They're, they're taking nothing to go stay at a hotel, but he's actually showing them every single day, don't take a wallet full of money with you. I'll supply your need every single day. Say daily. Isn't that what Jesus said when he taught us to pray? He said, Lord, give me today my what? Daily bread. And, and, and I know there's so many spiritual concepts we can break Break that down and, well, it means this, it means that. But really what it means is, Lord, give me today. Another translation says the food that I need for today. Literally food. Jesus learned to walk in, in prosperity all the days of his life. And what was that? That was God's provision for that day. Okay, so also the traveler's bag. It wasn't only a wallet. You know, you think about actually like a bag that had supplies in it. So say supplies. They wouldn't only carry money in a traveler's bag because he actually separated traveler's bag from money. So traveler's bag held supplies. So it held necessities. So say necessities of life. I believe prosperity entails necessities of life. What is necessities? You need a car to drive. You need a way to communicate. Are you with me? Food. He said, take no food. Say food. 
That's pretty self-explanatory. What did he mean? Take no food. Don't, don't take any food with you. I'll provide your food. Clothes. Take no extra clothes. And then finally, he said, when you go, stay in the same house. So he said, I'll provide your house. So basically what he broke down was, I'll, I'll be the source of your strength. I'll supply you with strength. I'll supply you with daily provision. I'll supply you with the money that you need. I'll supply you with food. I'll supply you with clothes. I'll supply you with a house. I believe that that's entitled to every believer. In fact, I know it is because look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, 25, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Say everyday life. Whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear. So it's, it's the same thing. Isn't life more than food? Isn't your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store up food in barns for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you more valuable to him than they are? Right? What is he trying to say? If God will feed the birds, you don't think that he'll feed you? Say yes. Say God will feed me. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work to make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Say close. Why do you have so little faith? Don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. That's a covenant statement there. <clears throat> Your heavenly Father already knows your needs. What are your needs? Lord, I need strength. I need daily provision. I need money. I need food. I need clothes. I need a house to live in. Your heavenly Father already knows your needs. Why do you have such little faith? Faith, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you what? Everything that you need. Is that, did anything in that passage talk about spiritual blessings there was any of that spiritual was he talking about spiritual food and spiritual clothes no so God promises to meet every believer's physical needs say every need shall be met I believe that with all of my heart so again, the disciples here, let's tie some of this together, they didn't have golden Cadillacs and mansions, but they had the strength that they needed. Hallelujah. They had the supplies that they needed when they needed it. They had the money that they needed when they needed it. They had the food that they needed when they needed it. They had the clothes that they needed when they needed it. And they had the house that they needed when they needed it. So I'm going to give you a definition of prosperity by example of what we see in the Bible. Write this down. God supplies all your needs in life. Not just enough to scrape by, but more than what it takes to cost or function. So you need to understand that. Number one, God supplies all of my needs. And just set your faith to understand that. Every believer. You don't have to beg God, you know, 
it's not it's not God's will that you're just if you're just in a perpetual place where you're like I'm homeless I don't have a house to live in you can believe God for that that's something that's a covenant Jesus brought you into where God promised to meet that need Are you with me Okay But not only did he promise to just give you just enough but he shows us by example more than what it takes to cost or function So I'll give you an example of this Whenever I mean God will meet your necessities in life, he'll see to it that you have what you need. That doesn't mean that God just gives you a peanut and a glass of water, right? Well, if the, if the body in order not to die needs to eat one peanut and like this much water, and if you can get one peanut and this much water, you technically won't die. So God says, I'll give you that one peanut and this much water so you technically don't die. That's not the character, the example of God that we have in the Bible. Again, he not only gives us just to not, not, not only does he meet our needs, he does not give us just enough to scrape by, but the example that we have is more than what it takes to cost or function. Okay? So, this example, Matthew 14, 18 through 21. There's 5,000 men plus women and children. They're, they're hungry. They've been following him for days. Peter says, send them away so we, they can go buy food. And he says, you feed them. Well, what would he have? We have a couple of loaves and a few fish. He said this, bring them here. Then he told the people to sit down on the grass, and Jesus took the five loaves and two fish. He looked up towards heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples who distributed it to the people. And look at this. They ate as much as they wanted. I know other same stories. They ate until they were full. See, he filled them. Right? And then afterwards, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. So not only did Jesus show us that he supplies the need, he doesn't just give you just enough to scrape by, but he gives you more than enough of what it takes or costs to function. Hallelujah. So here's another healthy definition of prosperity. I know I'm giving you definitions, but I want to help paint this picture. 2 Corinthians 9.8. I believe that this is, this is a verse that I believe is a perfect example of biblical prosperity. God will generously provide all that you need. Say, all that I need. See, a lot of people, though, that's where they get wrong, is, is they take this prosperity to a hyper level where their idea is the golden Cadillac and, the, and a, a 30, 75,000 square foot mansion and all of this stuff. And, and then you have the average Christian thinking, well, what's wrong with me? Do I not have enough faith? Why am I not getting those things? Well, be, you know, we can address the issue there of why there's several issues really wrong with that, with that picture. You don't need that. Come on, somebody. Are you with me? He will give you everything that you need. Say need. And you'll always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. That is a very wonderful biblical definition of prosperity. Everything that I need and plenty left over in order to share with other people. Hallelujah. So God's perfect will for every believer is not only that you would have enough food for your family to eat, but you have enough food for somebody to come over and to bless them. Make dinner for somebody. Not only that you'd have enough money to take your family out, but what about paying for a brother or a sister in the Lord or somebody that you're pouring into? 
Are you with me? So again, you got the people that think, well, God just wants me poor. He doesn't care about my needs. He doesn't care about the car that's falling down. He doesn't care that my children and we're on food stamps and we just can't scrape by. He just doesn't care. That's not true. He, he, will, he will meet every single need that you have and more than enough. But then the other Christians think that Jesus is my golden goose. He's my Christian lottery ticket. And, and it, I, I can kind of faith my way to quintillions and uh, trillions and quintillions of dollars. And, and that's just simply not true either. Look what Kenneth E. Hagin said of Jesus. So I, I bought everybody a gift. I didn't say I didn't buy you the gift. The church, we bought every family in the church a gift. I'm going to give it out to you either Sunday or next Wednesday. It's a book, one per family. Uh, and it's called The Midas Touch. And it was about a, Kenneth E. Hagin wrote this book towards the end of his life. It was right before the year 2000, and if you don't know the, the story behind the Midas touch, there was a, a man in, in Old Wives Tell, I, I believe his name was Midas or something to do with that, but basically he asked an angel to give him a golden touch, and so he loved gold, he had all this gold, all this money, and, and, and this angel appeared to him, obviously it's a story, it's not, it's not in the Bible or anything like that, this angel appeared to him and said, Ask me for anything, I'll give you what you want. And, and he, he asked to have a touch where everything that he touched turned to gold. And so, you know, he woke up the next day and he touched the, his bedpost and all of a sudden it turned to gold. And he got up, he got so excited, he went running down the road and touching the flowers, the roses start turning gold and touching the fountain and it turns gold. But then he had a problem. He went for breakfast and he picked up his spoon and his spoon turned gold, and it, and it made it, the egg turn gold, the hard-boiled egg that he was going to eat turned gold, rock hard, rock solid, and he's like, oh, my gosh. He tries to get a glass of water. The water turned gold inside of the glass. Now he can't eat. Now he can't drink. Then his little daughter comes running up to him and grabs and, and throws her arms around him, and then she turns into a gold statue. And so, long story short, he, the angel reappears, and he, he's, this man's crying. Midas is crying, and he begs him. Please undo this and gave him some instructions. But, you know, it's, it's basically when you hear that, the Midas touch, it's, it's, it's a metaphor for a person that everything they touch, it just turns to gold. And so Kenneth E. Hagin brought, it's called The Midas Touch, A Balanced Approach to Biblical Prosperity. It's a wonderful book. I'm going to give one to every church in the fam, uh, every family in the church. And then we're also going to start our small group next week. I know it's kind of off the cuff. If you can come, great. If you can't, it's okay. Um, but we'll be going over that book. It's easy to read, and we'll go over it. The men will go over it. The women will go over it, and it'll be our discussion point in the small group. But in that book, he, he shows, he answers the question, was Jesus poor? And he proves in many different ways that Jesus was not poor. Was Jesus homeless? No, he showed through the scripture that Jesus, in fact, he did have a home base. He did have a hometown. The scripture references he was not homeless. Now, when he did go and travel, he left his home several times where he was out abroad, and he didn't have a home in every single city that he went to, but he did have a home. You know, was Jesus, did he wear slave clothes? And No, he had a beautiful robe, the Bible says. 
He had a very nice robe. It was so nice that they gambled over it at the cross. They cast lots for his robe. It was woven together uh, into one piece. You know, uh, and he just goes through this whole list proving that Jesus was not poor. But listen to what he says, this statement about Jesus. This is Kennedy Hagan. He said, I believe Jesus was prosperous. Again, prosperous meaning what? Success. He had help reaching a destination successfully. He said, I believe Jesus was prosperous. However, his prosperity was not measured by the accumulation of great wealth and worldly possessions. He did not live in a palace with rooms full of gold, looking over fields of cattle and sheep. His lifestyle was not lavish or extravagant, and he was not driven by possessiveness and greed. Okay, so was Jesus prosperous? Yes, he was. But it was not measured by the accumulation of great wealth or worldly possessions, and he did not live in a palace with rooms full of gold, looking over the fields of cattle and sheep. His lifestyle was not lavish or extravagant, and he was not driven by possessiveness and greed. That's from Kenneth E. Hagin. Okay, so write this down for point number three. Let's keep moving tonight. Number three, it's this. There are examples of extreme wealth in the Bible, right? We're not going to gloss over. I know everybody that's on the other side is, well, what about this person and this person? And, And there are examples of extreme wealth in the Bible, yet not every person in the Bible had extreme wealth concerning material goods, right? So... Both are are true. There are people in the Bible that had extreme wealth, but not every single character, man and woman of God that you read about in the Bible had extreme wealth. But they prospered under the Lord. He provided for them. They had success in their mission and their journey. He met their physical needs. You know, you think about Elijah, the prophet Elijah. Did he have extreme material wealth? No. But yet the Lord led him to the brook Kareth and fed him the water that he needed. The birds flew in the food that he needed. When it dried up, he led him to the widow of Zarephath. And, and what did she do? She, he, through her obedience, a miracle was performed. She was starving. Now her family was fed. Now the prophet was fed. Are you with me? There was a person that built a, an extra room for the prophet. So he didn't have, he was not an example of extreme wealth, but yet he was prosperous by biblical definition. You know, it's truly true, and he talked about it in the book, but he said in America, our idea of prosperity is very different than 99% of the world's idea of prosperity. You know, Kennedy Hagan said that he had the privilege of raising up ministers to go out all over the world, and that he wanted to get prosperity in them, but they were sending back reports of what they were considering prosperity like, for example, tribes that live in these isolated places. He said these ministers were having to walk for days and weeks at a time just to get to a tribe. And then when God finally provided a bicycle or a motorcycle to them, they were praising the Lord because they had entered into prosperity. You know, some of these ministers in other countries, that they, they had holes in the ceiling. that water would come through. The cold would get in. And the Lord put them in a situation where they had heat, where they had some air conditioning, where they had a nice dry home to raise a bunch of kids still in a, you know, in a small home. And they had entered into prosperity, hallelujah, by their standard. But again, in America, everything 
can be overdone where we just, it's just the golden Cadillac in the, in the mansion. But let's bring it to the Bible. So here's some examples of extreme wealth in the Bible. You have Abraham in Genesis 13.2. Abraham was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Was Abraham a wicked man? No, he was a godly man. He was a man of covenant. He was a God's own friend, and he was extreme. He had extreme wealth. Okay? Solomon, 1 Kings 10.7. The queen of Sheba came and said, I didn't believe what was said until I arrived here and saw it with my own eyes. In fact, I had not heard the half of it. Your wisdom and prosperity are far beyond what I was told. She came to the, the home of Solomon, and she said, I've heard about you all across the world, but what I'm seeing is twice as much as what I heard. Your prosperity is twice as much. Job, it says in Job 1.3, that he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in the entire area. And then whenever he went through his tribulation, it actually says in the last chapter that God gave him double, double that. So instead of 7,000 sheep, he came out at the end with 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, right? So there are examples of extreme wealth in the Bible. There's no getting around it. And these weren't wicked, horrible men. These were godly men. But there's also examples of godly Christians lacking extreme wealth in the Bible. Look at the Laodicean church in Revelation 2, 9 through 10. Jesus said, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you were rich. So they were physically poor, and, and we could get into the history behind why was this church poor, because they were, they were suffering persecution. I mean, literally, it had, it had come to a point where they were in a society that rejected their God, where they were losing their jobs. They weren't allowed to buy stuff at the market. They weren't allowed to go and buy, sell, and trade with other people. They were losing their jobs for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, they didn't just have all of the quote-unquote silver and gold stacked up in the closet, but yet God provided for them. He made a way. He says... I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw you into prison to test you. You'll suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I'll give you the crown of life. Look at the church of, in Macedonia. This is 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4. Paul said, now, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God and his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. Say poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more, and they did it out of their own free will. See, he said the same thing, that this church, the churches in Macedonia were being persecuted. They were, by world's definitions, what the world would consider poor. But yet Paul's taking up an offering, and they're giving, I mean, as extravagant as what he's saying. And he says they're doing it on their own free will. He's like, I didn't have to bend their arm and twist their neck, you know, to get an offering or something out of them. They're giving because they were taking up an offering, you'll see here. They begged us again and again, verse 4, 
for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. Wow, say Jerusalem. So not only did the churches in Macedonia, were they lacking extreme wealth, the churches in Jerusalem were lacking extreme wealth. Okay, let's look at the example of Apostle Paul. And I agree. I, I don't believe, at least known, I don't believe there was one man that walked closer to the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth than the Apostle Paul did. Wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You know, Leonard Ravenhill said that. He said the demon, the, the, there was the seven sons of, of Sceba that came and tried to cast out this demon, and, and the demon said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? He didn't mention any other Christian's name. He didn't mention Peter. He didn't mention Philip. He didn't mention any of them. He said, Jesus I know and Paul that I know. Man, I don't know if there was another man that walked as closely to the Lord as the Apostle Paul. But yet, look, look at his example. He said, for I was never in need, or not that I was ever in need, he said, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Say content. I know how to live in almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. Basically, what Paul was saying is, I've been in both situations, Come on. I've been in situations where I've had nothing, but I've also been in situations where I've abound in all things. And guess what? When I was in the situation when I didn't have anything where I abased, it didn't make me less spiritual than I was in the situation where I was abounding and prospering in, in, in excessive material wealth. We also got to get over that stigma, too, that you're not spiritual and you're not a good Christian. And if you're just not a millionaire, then you're just not doing something right. That's not true. That's not in the Bible. Are y'all with me? 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, He said, I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry. I've been thirsty. I've gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without eating, uh, without eating enough I'm sorry, I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Okay, here's, here's my point. I'm going to read this to you. It's not that God didn't care about Paul. It's that Paul was willing to leave momentary comfort and luxury for the sake of the gospel. Clinging to comfort and wealth was not a priority. He would abase which meant to come down low, to, to be cold, to be in that type of situation. He would abase, but the Lord would soon bring him into situations where he would again abound. He didn't stay in a place of just struggle, but he was willing to leave that place of, of being comfortable and, and having the more excessive material wealth in order to take the gospel where it needed to be taken. He didn't cling to materialism in any way, shape, or form. <clears throat> all right, write this down for point number four tonight. Are y'all doing okay? Point number four, although some in the Bible had extreme material wealth, as we went over, they did, and they were men of God. Although they had extreme material wealth, here's the question. Is extreme material wealth God's highest priority concerning us? Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, 17 through 31.
As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running to him and knelt down and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Then come follow me. So at this, let me see here. At this, the man's face, uh, the, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. And I'll explain that in just a moment. Uh, it says, this amazed them, but Jesus said again, dear children, it's very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So the disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Then Jesus looked at them and said, humanly speaking, it's impossible, but with God, everything is possible. Then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied, and assuredly, and I assure you that everyone who's given up house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or property for my sake or for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. Well, let me just also break this down. Kennedy Hagan did bring great perspective to this verse. He said that, you know, a lot of people would just use this to say, well, when you give something, that's God's promise for a hundredfold return. But you just think logically. How many people have given up a house, I mean Christian, and received a hundred houses back from God? How many of the disciples do we have historical documentation that they received, literally, a hundred houses, you know, put back. Now, Peter, he owns a real estate empire, uh, you know, our properties, and brothers or sisters, it's like, how did God, how did God fulfill the promise of brothers, of the promise of brothers or sisters? What, what Jesus is saying is when you enter into the kingdom, you may have lost one physical brother, right? But now you've entered into this kingdom where now you have a hundred brothers and sisters. You may have had to get kicked out of your home, your one home, but watch, just like the disciples, I'll open up a hundred homes to you. You may have got kicked off of one property, but look, I'll bring you into a family of God where well, I'll open up all these things. And through sharing and through the love of the, the body of Christ, I'll open these things up to you. Do you see how God fulfilled that? It wasn't just like, you know, well, I gave my car away, and so literally the Lord gave me back 100 cars, literally. You know, and again, coming into this, because I never came into even understanding that God wanted to meet my basic needs. My, he didn't, I didn't ever even understood that God wanted to give me everything that I needed and then plenty left over to share with others. And so... I've heard stuff like that and grabbed a hold of it and, and then put my faith out and then you just come to this place where you're like, well, how come I, I've given a car away? I've given a car. I've given the deed away. I've not received a hundred cars in return. But then the Lord's changed my heart where it's like, we'll talk about that in another 
message that giving to get is not the top priority in giving. Biblically, it's not the top priority. There are laws in the kingdom, but again, giving to, I'm going to give something to get something is not biblical giving. And I don't want anybody to be offended with me. Just stick with me, okay? You guys love me. I love you. Okay, so we keep reading. It says, but to uh, many who are the greatest now will be the least important then, and to those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. So I read all that to basically highlight this one point. Although in the Bible some had extreme material wealth, is extreme material wealth God's highest priority concerning us? Say no. Why? The rich young ruler had extreme material wealth. If that was God's highest priority is just making sure that every single person has the houses and the Cadillac and all of this stuff, then Jesus would have said, hey, bucko, you're doing great as it is. Come on. No, he said, sell it all and follow me. So instead of extracting all these points out of that, my, whole, my one point with this point is that, no, it was not God's highest priority. In fact, Jesus said this elsewhere in Luke 12, 15. He said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Does that paint the picture that giving every person extreme material wealth is God's highest priority? Say no. Am I saying now that God just doesn't care? No, I'm not saying that either, right? There's a middle ground, but it's not God's highest priority for people. In fact, Jesus showed us that in order to follow him, I'm going to give you four things here. Jesus showed us, he modeled to us that in order to follow him, we must die to these four things. Are y'all ready for the four things? Look at Luke chapter 12. Let's start with the first one. Jesus showed us that not only was it not God's highest priority to give us all excessive or extreme material wealth, he showed us that in order to follow him, each person must die to, number one, the accumulation of extreme material wealth. Look at this example in Luke chapter 12, 15 through 21. I got to get moving. It says, Beware, guard yourself against every kind of greed. Life's not measured by how much you own. We just read that. Verse 16, he told a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have enough room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Right? I, 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 don't, I have too many crops and not a big enough barn. I'll tear it down and I'll build a bigger barn. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and all my other goods. And then I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus said, you fool, you'll die this very night. Then who will get everything that you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. So what's actually Jesus' top priority for us? A rich relationship with God. Come on, somebody. Now, I'm going to level this out because does that mean that if you have a lot, if you have extreme material wealth, that you can't have a rich relationship with God? No, it doesn't mean that. But it's not God's top priority with people. But so he said, we must die to the accumulation of extreme material wealth. 
So even in that situation where, I'll talk about this in a moment, where God does give people extreme material wealth, even if you are a person that God gives extreme material wealth, you have to die to that desire to accumulate extreme material wealth. Every single Christian must die to the love of money. Every single Christian must die to the pursuit of wealth. And every Christian must die to serving money. This is all out of Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 24. Let's look at that. It says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store up your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body's filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body's filled with darkness. And if the light that you think that you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. Say love. You will be devoted to one, and you will despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. What does that break down to? It breaks down to those three points. He says you must die to the love of money, the pursuit of money, or the pursuit of wealth, and you must die to serving money in order to follow Jesus Christ. Look at... um, Jesus showed us that in order to follow him, each person must die to the accumulation of extreme material wealth, the love of money, the pursuit of wealth, serving money. Okay, look at this verse here, Matthew 19, 24. He said, I'll say it again. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. That doesn't really make sense. Right, we think an eye of a needle, that's where you thread the, the thread through. That's where you put the little thread through a needle, the eye of the needle. But that's not actually what it's talking about. If you look this up, there were certain entrances into the city. It had a big city wall. And there were certain entrances that the entrance was very narrow and it was very short. And so in order for the camels to actually go through, they had to unload all of its luggage and all of its baggage, and then camel would actually have to get down on its like knees and like crawl to enter into that gate. And they called those gates the eye of the needle. Okay? So the camel had to unload all of their baggage in order to fit through the entrance. Basically, Jesus saying this is, the same is true for each person. You have to die to all of these things. Does it mean that God won't give some people those things? It doesn't mean that, but you got to die to it. If you don't die to it, you'll misuse it. And then you'll misuse it, and what will happen? You'll give an account to God for it. Y'all still with me tonight? Okay. So some people may say this. Well, John, I pursue wealth for the sake of the kingdom. I myself have been caught in that trap thinking that, Lord, I'm going to pursue after the business. I'm going to pursue and do these things, and I'm going to do it for the kingdom's sake. John, I pursue wealth for the sake of the kingdom. Write this down for point number five. Nowhere in the Bible does it instruct us to pursue after wealth for any reason whatsoever. 
Nowhere in the Bible does it instruct us to pursue after wealth for any reason. Now, again, is wealth bad? No, it's not, but the Bible does not tell us to pursue after it. In fact, it actually gives us numerous warnings against pursuing after it. Look at 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 11. Yet true godliness with itself is great wealth. We all brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. Did Paul have the idea that God giving every person excessive material wealth was at the top of God's priority? Say no. You came in here butt naked. You may not leave butt naked, but not far from it. You're not taking anything with you. The only thing is treasure in heaven. And what is treasure in heaven? It's souls. Souls reach through you obeying your assignment on the earth. So, he goes on to say, if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Why? Because that's biblical prosperity. Is there anybody that could say before the Lord today, Lord, I may not have everything that my flesh wants to have, but Lord, I have enough? Hallelujah. Then you're in biblical prosperity. And you need to thank God for it. So it says, if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmless desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Well, John, I want to be rich for the kingdom's sake. I long to be rich. I pursue after wealth for the kingdom's sake. It, it doesn't matter. It says for everyone, anyone who longs to be rich, fall into the temptation or trapped by many foolish, desire, harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It didn't say money was, the love of money. Well, John, it's, it's good for us to just have this excess as long as we don't love it. I'm telling you, it becomes a slippery slope to, to keep your heart in check where you cross that line where you start loving things you shouldn't love. And you start being devoted and serving things that you are not meant to serve as a believer. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and have pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, are a man of God. So run from all these evil things and pursue, say pursue, did he say pursue after wealth for the kingdom's sake? No. Pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. You aren't to pursue after wealth. You're to pursue after righteousness, a godly life, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Are you with me? Proverbs 8, 10 through 11. I'm going to rapid fire some at you. Choose, God says, choose my instruction rather than silver. And my knowledge rather than pure gold. For wisdom is far more valuable than rubies. And nothing you desire can compare with it. Proverbs 23, 4 through 5. Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Well, I'm just trying to get ahead for the kingdom's sake. Don't wear yourself out trying to be rich. Be wise enough to know when to quit. In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears. For it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. 
This one's uh, Proverbs 28, 20 through 22. The trustworthy person will get a rich reward, but a person who wants quick riches will get into trouble. Listen to me. And you know, you can even use the law of sowing and reaping or the law of seed faith by still getting into that place in your heart. You're wanting quick riches. And the person who wants quick riches will get into trouble. Showing partiality is never good, yet some will do wrong for a mere piece of bread. Listen to this. Greedy people try to get rich quick, but don't realize they're headed for poverty. I'm going to go ahead and just go to point number six here. And so you need to understand, nowhere in the Bible does it instruct us to pursue after wealth for any reason. Say, no reason. Should I pursue after wealth? No, Jesus said, seek after the kingdom of God. So number six, write this down. You should always have what you need. So with all of that being said, is money bad? Is it something you should run from? No, you should always have what you need. Jesus brought us into a covenant of prosperity, which is what? All that you need and more to share. And you should absolutely use your faith to obtain this. If you don't have enough food to eat, you need to use your faith. God wants you to have enough food to eat. Are you with me? If you don't have proper living for your family... Where you're like literally like I, I, there's snow, there's water coming up. You need to use your faith. God is okay with you using your faith to have proper living for your family. You should always have what you need. Jesus brought, into, brought us into a covenant of prosperity, all that you need and more to share. So you should use your faith to obtain biblical prosperity, but nowhere in the Bible are we told to use our faith to pursue extreme material wealth. Listen to me again. Nowhere in the Bible are we told or given the example to use our faith to obtain extreme material wealth. As Christians, well, I'm going to use my faith and I'm going to have what Abraham had. I'll have what Job had. And and, and what are we doing? We're pursuing after riches. And the reason I believe God's given me this message is because I feel like I've personally seen Christian leaders, ministers, great men of God that maybe began on this pursuit with the right heart and and they've fallen into a trap where it's become not what it should be. Y'all still with me? Okay. I'm almost done here. Man, I did faster than I thought. This is great. Number seven. So with all of this being said, does it just mean that like God, he, it, it, you're just lucky? If you just get money, you're just lucky. You just got lucky. You won the spiritual lottery. And No. Listen to this. Write this down. God can give you extreme material wealth. Isn't that kind of a paradox? You aren't to pursue after it, but God can give you extreme material wealth. But it comes with extreme responsibility. So I'll give you some examples of people that God gave extreme uh, material wealth to as we already went through. Abraham, Solomon, Job. God gave those men extreme material wealth. 
I also believe the Bible talks about this in Romans chapter 12, 6 through 8. In his grace, God has given us different gifts, say gifts, for doing certain things well. There's different gifts in the body of Christ. These aren't ministry gifts like fivefold ministry. These are gifts in the body of Christ. It says, so God's given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If God's given you the gift of serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is encouraging others, be encouraging. If it is giving, say giving. Say giving. What should you do? You should give generously. What do do I mean? The same way that God, in his grace, say grace. Okay, the word grace in the New Testament, it means power and ability. So when the Holy Spirit gives you a grace, he gives you the power and the ability to do certain things. Whenever God gives you the gift of prophecy, the Holy Ghost comes on you and gives you the power and the ability to prophesy, the power and the ability to teach, the power and the ability to serve. So this is the power and the ability to give. What do I believe? I believe this is God, people that God appoints in the body of Christ that he actually gives them extreme wealth. If God's given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have the gift of for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. And if you say, John, I disagree with you, that's what Kenneth Hagin said about this verse. Hallelujah. So that one's not even from me. That one's from, it's from the Lord, but it came from Kenneth Hagin. I believe that these are people who God gives extreme material wealth to. And I'll prove it to you. Deuteronomy 8.18. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for he gives you the power to get wealth. Who does? God gives a man the power to get wealth. But in the body of Christ, there's different. We don't all have every single thing. Are you with me? So although it's God's will for every Christian to prosper in in the things that you need, to have everything that you need in plain leftover, doesn't matter who you are. If you're a Christian, that's God's will for you. But there are certain people that God will give extreme material wealth to these people. Look at 1 Chronicles 29, 12. Both riches and honor come from you. Who do they come from? God. And you reign over all. Your hand is power and might. Your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. So God gives it to some. Write this down. This is the second part of this. So my point was God can give you extreme material wealth, but it comes with extreme responsibility. So God gives it to some, and there's responsibility to kingdom purposes if you become a person that God gives this to. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Seventeen through nineteen. Look what Paul said. Teach those who are rich in this world. What did he say? That they're bad, that they're not men and women of God? No. Teach them to not be proud and to not trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who gives richly to all of us all that we need for our enjoyment. Tell them, listen to this. So Paul wasn't rebuking people that had extreme material wealth. 
He said, teach the rich people, tell them that they should use their money to do good. Right? Amen. So people that God gives extreme material wealth to, and what do I mean by extreme? Guys, I really believe if you're a Christian that's making a hundred, two hundred, you know, something thousand dollars a year, you you are in a small class of people in regards to the world's population. You know how many people in the world make like a hundred thousand dollars a year? Two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a year? I mean, it's a fraction of the world's population. So we may get tied up in this American rat race and think, well, there's millionaires and billionaires and all these other people, but I mean, honestly, God, he's not just the God of Texas or the God of America, he's the Lord of all the earth. And he sees these people he's given, by definition, extreme material wealth to. And he says, there's a responsibility. You should use it to do good, and you should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they'll be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Luke 12, 48, it says, But when someone who does not know and does something wrong, they will be punished only lightly. But when someone has been given much, look at this. Jesus said, To one who has been given much, what? Much will be required in turn. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. So do you understand this point here that God can give extreme material wealth to true men and women of God, but it comes with extreme responsibility before the Lord? Last scripture, and then we'll pray together, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Ten through fifteen. Here's my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year you were the first who wanted to give, and you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish what you started. Let there be eagerness that you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. And listen to what he said. Give in proportion to what you have. Does God expect every Christian to be able to give a million dollars or, you know, something like that? Absolutely not. But here is a biblical requirement that whatever you have, you are required by God to give in proportion to whatever you have. And guess what? Those that have been given much, much will be required of them by the Lord. But you have so many Christians that are trying to use prosperity and trying to use faith and trying to use this because they're pursuing the golden Cadillac and the mansion dream and they're not, they've never died to the accumulation of excessive material wealth, the love of money, serving money, the desire to be rich, and they're not properly using what the Lord gave them. Okay, so... Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And look what he said. Give according to what you have, not what you don't have. What does that mean? You know, 
Unless it's like an offering from the Lord. If you make $1,000, don't feel a religious obligation. I, ha- I made $1,000. I have to give $1,000. You give in proportion to what you have. But then I would just also say this. And don't hear this in any way of me trying to use this as a manipulative tool. But if you make $10,000 and it doesn't grieve your spirit to throw $50 towards the Lord, like there's a problem with that. Because it's not in proportion with what the Lord's given you. So it says, give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean that your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourself. You know, I'll be honest with you. I do believe, and and I don't have any names. I don't have anything like that, but the Lord has showed me that there are those that have begun to take this message and think, that it's just God's absolute will for them to have the golden Cadillac and the mansion, ministries. And so they have no problem taking from a poor woman, taking from a person that is poor, and like they sleep fine at night saying, I can take from this person who is poor, and they can give to me who's already rich and and, and make me even more rich. This literally says, giving should not make Life easy for others and hard for yourself. And then they can just think, well, that's fine. There's no problem. And and just a total misuse of things. Are you guys with me? Now, again, I'm not telling you if you're poor and the Lord tells you to give and you shouldn't. And and I'm going to talk about some of these other principles. This isn't the full message. This is just an introduction. We'll go into some more next week and as long as it takes. But... But I just think that that's kind of absurd. You know, I always hear it taught out of 1 Kings 17 that Elijah, you know, I've heard it, it taught in offering messages. Elijah, he went to the widow of Zarephath who had nothing. And, you know, she gave her last bit of nothing. And God took her little last bit of nothing and multiplied it. And, and then, he, you know, she, she received a miracle from sowing out of her need. Yeah, but here's the story about Elijah. Guess what? He wasn't a millionaire. Elijah didn't go to the widow of Zarephath with a treasure chest full of treasure and saying, hey, starving widow, give me the little bit last of bread that you have. He, was, he literally had nothing just like the woman had nothing. And I feel like in a lot of situations, you know, that's what we're doing is like, And, and I'll get into this, that God has instituted the giving of the ministry. You should give to the ministry. You should give to the local church. That ministers should be supported by those that they teach and that those that benefit from it. There's no doubt about that. But sometimes I go to places where it's like every night, offering, offering, offering. And then it's not just like enough to have everything that you need and plenty left over to share with others. It's like 40,000, 50,000, 100,000 the third night, 300,000, a million. You know, and it's just, you start thinking about some of that stuff. How great would it be to be able to take up an offering in, in your ministry and you meet what you need and then everything else that just comes in, you just start blessing other people, other ministries, other things. Elijah didn't have a treasure chest of gold, and then made the widow give her last bite of bread. He didn't do that. And Kennedy Hagan talks about it in the book. He says that he, his spirit has been grieved by seeing some things. And, and hallelujah. I mean, it's just trying to find balance here. Are you with me? So he goes on to say this. 
You should, your giving should make, should, I don't mean that your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourself. I only mean that there should be some equality. Say equality. And I'll probably cover this next week, but God's solution to poverty in the church. What is it? It's giving through those that have excessive wealth. You got Christians in the church that are millionaires, and then you got Christians in that same exact church that can't keep their rent on, that can't keep their light on. And we think that, that God's, you know, He's okay. He's given some one person excessive extreme wealth, and that you think that God gave you for just to have the golden Cadillac and the golden egg and you know and all of that, but he actually gave it with a responsibility that there should be some equality in the body of Christ. Are y'all still with me? It's a true biblical conviction that I'm asking you to pray about. Don't just take my word for it. Pray about it. Amen. Hallelujah. The Lord told me to do this, and and I want to end this evening by us just taking a moment and entering into prayer. And can we just pray and thank God for what we have? Can we do that together? Hallelujah. Y'all just, you can stand on your feet if you would like. Hallelujah. Come on, I want you to just begin to pray right now. Just begin to pray. Thanking the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Lord, we thank you for what you have given us. <coughs> that, Lord, Truly, every person, even when we think we have such little, we have so little and we're lacking that in, in perspective, we are in true prosperity in comparison to many people that love you. You've given us so much, Lord. You've given us homes to live in, and we thank you. You've given us clothes to wear. There's not one naked person sitting in the church tonight. You've given us cars to drive. You gave people money to put in their gas tank and food to eat. Lord, thank you that you renew our strength. Thank you, Lord, that you took our sickness and removed our diseases from amongst us. Thank you, Lord, that you are the balm of Gilead. You are our healing. Thank you, Father, that you've always been faithful and you've always given us the money that we need. That even in this room, that there's been so many people that have testimonies of they may have not have had everything that they thought that they wanted in their flesh, but when it came down to it, you, you did a miracle and you provided for them financially. You made sure that their bills were paid. You made sure that their needs were met. And Lord, we just praise you for that. We thank you for it, Lord. We have such comfort, Lord, and we thank you for that. But, Lord, we're going to be very careful to not let ourselves get lulled to sleep in our prosperity. You said that when you enter into the land overflowing with milk and honey in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and you build fine homes to live in, and your flocks and your herds multiply, you said, do not forget the Lord your God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt. Lord, we give you honor. We give you glory. Lord, our hearts, we break that tie of, of the love of money in this church. We break that demon of mammon out of any heart in this church. 
Lord, we will depart. We are not, we, we sever the tie and die to the desire to accumulate material wealth in this church. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for our children, Lord. They're a blessing from the Lord. You've blessed us with so much. You've blessed us with spiritual blessings. You've given us everything in Christ. You've given us the oil of joy. You've given us the Prince of Peace. You've given us victory over our enemies. You've given us authority over the devil. Hallelujah, Lord. I thank you, Father. I thank you for the privilege of us getting to raise our children up in the house of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we were lost, but now that we're found in Jesus' name. You've saved us. You've redeemed us. Filled us with the Holy Spirit. Lord, that we can go home rejoicing tonight because we have the foretaste of the glory already on the inside of us. We may not be glorified yet, but Lord, you've given us the foretaste of that glory, which is the Holy Spirit, life in the Spirit. And so we can rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, Apostle Paul said, full of joy. We are content, Lord. Because the reality is, Jesus, people mock it as a cliche, but the reality is we have you, Jesus, and we're content, Lord. We are content. True godliness in itself is true contentment. Therefore, if you have enough food to eat and clothes to wear, be content, declares the Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. We don't pursue after money. We don't pursue after wealth. We pursue after the kingdom, after righteousness, gentleness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Lord, let complaining leave our lips tonight and never come back again. We complain about stuff. No, no we, we're not going to do that anymore, Lord. You've brought us into the promised land. We're so grateful. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Lord, bless them for being hearers of the word in Jesus' name. If you would like to sow a seed or partner with this work that the Lord is doing, check out the description of this podcast or go to www.rhctx.com forward slash give. You can find all the ways to give on that page. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. Until next time, this is John Wallace.